Hello and welcome to 99 from 99, the movie podcast where we take you back to the past and cover 99 films or more from the year 1999. I'm your stubborn Kentuckian host, Michael Denniston, joined every week by madman of the airwaves, Ben Zook. Why take a journey to the past? Well, perhaps like you, we've looked out our window and seen the world grow smaller, colder, and scarier. Not here. So sit back, relax, and come back with us to a time when theaters were full, tickets were affordable, and there were so many good movies, you couldn't possibly catch them all. That's what this podcast is here to do. So we hope you take the entire trip with us, 99 episodes on the films from 1999. you to hit me as hard as you can i'm scared to close my eyes i see dead people i believe you have my papler now that i've met you would you object to never seeing me again this is not just a couch it's just our couch take the red pill and i show you how deep the rabbit hole goes leave the light on after bedtime I always thought it'd be better to be a fake somebody, a real nobody. Are we gonna air it? Of course not. You come highly recommended, Mr. Wells. You're praised for your discretion. Thank you, ma'am. As you know, my husband passed away recently. Yes. My husband was the only one with the combination to this safe. These were my husband's private things. I didn't. I didn't realize. Do you want to tell me what you found, Mrs. Christian? Private Detective Tom Wells is one of the only people who has seen it. It is eight millimeters wide. It runs at 16 frames per second. And he has been hired to discover. All I want is to know that this atrocity is false. I want the proof of it. If what's on it is real. Finding the guys who made this film is going to be very difficult. I need information I thought you might be able to help. You name the vice, I name the price. Some doors should never be opened. Tom, where are you? Because once you go through... I'm gonna be okay. I'm gonna be okay. There is no going back. Nicholas Cage. I'm trying to understand! Whoever you were, just forget about it. I can't. There's no one left to finish this but me. Eight Millimeter. A film by Joel Schumacher. Alright, getting into uh, Eight Millimeter. I have a feeling this is going to be a really interesting discussion because... Usually I'm the one that goes and looks at all the supplemental uh, hmm. crap. And it sounds like this week you're the one who did that. Because I, I have nothing, you know, additional to talk, to discuss with 8mm besides just the movie that, you know, that I watch. Well, uh, primarily I uh, I went to, you know, I was just reading up on it on some of the – because it's one that I I saw and I was excited about. Uh, when it came out initially in 99, because I, I was a huge fan of Seven. So this is uh, written by Andrew Kim Walker, and it was heavily promoted uh, with his his name on it. 
I can't say I was the world's biggest fan of Joel Schumacher, especially in 99. I think he was sort of a, a uh, internet punching bag for the, the, the Batman mm-hmm. and Robin fiasco and all that. Uh, so it, it was interesting to see him. Uh, okay, he's taking darker material, and they they didn't market it that way. Uh, I don't remember it getting really a positive response at all. I just checked uh, to see the Rotten Tomatoes score, which is at 22%. Uh, unfortunately, I think reading and checking those scores now, um, it's a, it can be disingenuous because you, you, they start to include reviews that mm-hmm. are much, mm-hmm. you know, much further down the road. And so I try to get, you know, look at the ones that are, I guess, the bigger names get, uh, Ebert had a positive review on it, but a lot of other bigger names did not. So, um, I, I was into it, but I, you know, I was reading, uh, and apparently Andrew Kevin Walker sort of disavows this film. There was an article I found where they were talking about uh, seven being remade, which he was totally, totally against, but he was like, they should remake eight millimeter, you know, with my, my original script. And so I was like, Oh, that'll be interesting. Uh, you know, he apparently hates this film. He's never seen it. Um, and left the production because Schumacher went his way, went the studio way. Uh, and then I read it. I was a little bit, I was running behind this morning for this recording. Cause I told you I was finishing that up. And uh, boy, um, I'm glad in a way that I stuck with it because really it's like just the <laughs> the the final handful of scenes that are. I mean, it, I'm reading it. And I'm thinking like, hey, this is the movie. This uh-huh. first draft is the same damn thing. Why is this so controversial? And even after reading it, I have to, you know, I'm thinking Mr. Andrew Kevin Walker should probably just watch the fucking movie because it's pretty damn close <laughs> to what, what I see on the page. So <laughs> I'm not here to throw Mr. Schumacher under the bus <laughs> because I think all the, the faults with the film are in the, the original material. Um, so, um, yeah, this is one that I liked uh, way back in the day when I first watched it. I, I wasn't crazy about it. It didn't become the new seven for me. Um, but, uh, I had not watched it in years, so I, I don't know. Uh, we'll get into how it held up for me, but, uh, what about you? Did you watch it, uh, back in 99 or did you come to it much later? Uh, this is another pay-per-view, I think, um, watch and, and yeah, so you brought up Rotten Tomatoes and it's interesting because, you know, I don't remember checking Rotten Tomato scores in 1999 um, at all. <laughs> and my only real exposure to, you know, aggregate uh, film criticism would be um, Siskel and Ebert. And interestingly enough, uh, Eight Millimeter was the first um, review on the Siskel and Ebert show that aired without uh, that aired past Gene Siskel's death. Uh, Gene Siskel actually mm. died one day prior to the airing of this review. And it was Ebert and another guy uh, who wasn't Siskel, obviously. And, and they had a split review. And so from my perspective, it was like, okay, this is a divisive movie. This is a movie I might like, I might not. And I came to it, you know, with that kind of mindset. And maybe that, maybe that makes it differently. I think sometimes when, you know, you have that score in your head, of 22% or that you have this idea in your head of, okay, I've got to find what's wrong with this movie. What's terrible about this movie because so many experts have told me it's terrible. I have to dislike it kind of thing. And I don't know. I don't remember thinking that at all when I watched this in, you know, in 99 and I remember liking it, uh, probably liking it more than I do now. I think, you know, I think, <laughs> I think the movie's really close to to getting what they're trying to achieve, 
and it doesn't quite get there, but it gets there just enough for me to appreciate what they were trying to do. The other movie I can think of that's very similar to it is the William Friedkin movie uh, Cruising, which is also similarly undervalued. Um, have you seen that movie, Michael? I have not. You might want to check it out. It's an interesting uh, experience, especially if you liked 8mm. It, it, it came up a lot when I was watching this one because it's a similar story of a cop played by Al Pacino, who has to go um, undercover as, as like a in, into S&M uh, gay bars in the in 1980s New York. And it is a similar idea of the protagonist kind of getting absorbed into the world that he is pretending to be a part of. And in 8mm with Tom Wells, you can see that he gradually starts to wear... Um, darker clothing. He gradually starts to wear like tighter fitting clothing that starts to resemble, you know, starts to resemble the things that machine is wearing. And Schumacher, um, came up, uh, as a, as a costume designer. He created the costumes for, uh, Sleeper, for example. The, uh -huh. so when you see the gigantic bananas, uh, and, and strawberries or whatever in <laughs> Sleeper, like he, he created those. Um, and so I have I said, to think, I'm going to use those again in Batman. I'm going to bring that back. <laughs> well, okay. So, 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 okay. That's an interesting discussion too, because <laughs> I mean, so when I saw Batman forever and I saw Batman and Robin, I thought to myself, you know, those were pretty bad movies, especially Batman and Robin. <laughs> they, they, they were pretty bad. That was bad. I don't ever want to see that again. I really <laughs> hope they don't make any more of those but I didn't think to myself, I didn't think, it didn't occur to me until much later um, when I heard other people complaining specifically about, about the nipples on the bat suit. Uh, and I thought, that's kind of strange. I mean, that's kind of a strange thing to really point out and say, that's the reason why I don't like that movie. Um, I mean, do you think there is a, so, I mean, Schumacher, who is a gay man, who probably had, if you look at his filmography, you know, okay, so he's not an auteur or whatever the pretentious dickbags, you know, would, would want to say about him. But you do see some um, linking elements. There is this, some of these underlying themes of, of darkness, uh, of, of hidden darkness. Uh, so and you see that in The Lost Boys. You see that in the Batman movies. You see it in some movies that he made after this. Um, maybe Phantom of the Opera, which was terrible, too. Um, <laughs> do you think there's an element of like gay panic when, uh, hmm. when like when adolescent, uh, boys watch the, you know, their heroes on screen turned into some sort of weird sexual thing like that? Yeah, I guess I'd, I'd never really phrase it that way. <laughs> gay panic. It's um, quite extreme, I, admittedly, but go ahead. Well, I don't think so. Um, yeah, I, I think you know, just going back to the Batman franchise, they would have absolutely no issues. Uh, you know, Ain't It Cool News, I think, was uh, infamously uh, deemed responsible for the uh, the negative, leading the negative press on Batman and Robin. Uh, I really doubt that the talkbackers back in the day would have taken any sort of issue with the gratuitous ass shots 
of Alicia Silverstone as Batgirl. Uh-huh. But Schumacher evens the playing field and uh, gives us the, the butt shots of Chris O'Donnell and George Clooney. And uh, yeah, I, I think they it makes them uncomfortable because, uh, you know, comic books have always been about titillation. And, you know, in a certain regard, Schumacher did a pretty honest <laughs> appraisal of <laughs> Batman comic books, they were out of step with, especially coming off the Tim Burton films and coming off like the Frank Miller work and Alan Moore in the 80s. Uh, but yeah, I mean, for a long time, comic books greatly resembled uh, the, the the two Batman films they did. And I think that the, the nerds felt like uh, whatever pedigree of sort of cool that they had had gained and and pop culture status was was being denied to them by Schumacher going back to a a different age, a more fun age, which I think Sam Raimi probably did a little more successfully with his Spider-Man films. I think that's what Schumacher was kind of going for. Um, To the gay panic, I think it's interesting because you brought up uh, Cruising. Yeah. uh, You know, the only thing I know about that film uh, is people talking about it now, saying how how poorly it's aged and how it's, you know, reprehensible uh, because it – uh, reflects, um, you know, a certain uh, political handling of of different uh, characters uh, from its time, and not of a time that is more comfortable with us now. Which what you and I have talked about. Uh, we did. Uh, we looked at uh, Martin Scorsese's uh, Mean Streets uh, mm-hmm. on my other yeah. podcast, and there's a, there's a scene in there which is really uncomfortable, uh, featuring uh, a couple of gay characters. Um, I, I think you know that's what uh, just bringing it back to just to date millimeter uh, with Schumacher. I wondered about that because I had I had told you uh, off mic when we were we're talking about okay next week we're gonna do eight millimeter that I remembered uh, reading an article where he was really really enthusiastic about this tight like muscle shirt that Nicolas Cage was going to wear. And, and I, that gave me pause even as a teenager when I was, I don't know if I was reading this premier magazine, whatever entertainment weekly thinking like, Oh, that's, you know, I don't know if that's, you know, David Fincher. Did he have that focus with Brad Pitt and seven as far as, and I'm sure he did in a certain uh-huh. way. I think Schumacher uh-huh. is, he's just more upfront about it. He's just honest about like, Hey, I want this to, you know, I want this to look sexy in a way and titillating. And it's interesting with eight millimeter, which is also a film about titillation. I mean, it's about titillation that we as a society reject, um, that elements of that do seep through. I think you made an excellent point about, uh, the way they do dress the Nicolas Cage character. It's something that I reject as a teenager, but now I feel like, Oh, okay. So we're, we're seeing, our character who is this could be really abrasive and condescending uh, as he investigates the darker, seedier elements of this sort of fetish society. Cause he could, he could easily come across a character that's just going around lecturing people uh-huh. about yeah. how awful they are and their sexual impulses. Uh, seeing him start to dress that way, seeing him, that's something that's missing in the original script. There's a little more humor. There's a sequence where uh, Joaquin Phoenix uh, is the max character who's sort of, uh, his guide uh, through this underworld uh, takes him through, and that basically the sort of the password is "fuck you, Tony" or whatever the doorman's name is. "Fuck you, I'm not a cop." And in the Andrew Kevin Walker script, the Nicholas Cage character never breaks; like he's always in cop mode. He's always looking at this world as these are the worst scumbags on the planet, and never has any sort of fun at all. And I actually like that Schumacher injects uh, a little bit of that in there. Uh, but reading the Rotten Tomatoes reviews now, that's one of the biggest criticisms is that the film is not fun enough, which I don't know. That's a delicate balance, right? 
I mean, yeah, you, you talked yeah. earlier about you like what this film was going for and you feel that it gets close enough. I don't know. I mean, how much more fun can you make this material before you eventually come back to the central premise that we are investigating a snuff film where a young girl was killed for stroke material? And that's a that's a weird criticism, I think, to to charge against this film is that uh, it's it's not something that is, you know, a good weekend entertainment. It's it's something that's meant to be even sexier. I, I think Schumacher took it as far as he could uh, into that world. And uh, yeah, watching it now, I think I actually respect it more. That is as a teenager, I was thinking it was not a cool enough film. And now I'm kind of glad that it's not that cool. I'm glad there's still kind of an old man, middle aged adult sensibility there. Uh, in it that keeps it from being pop art in a way. It is, it is interesting because I think the movies that, that this gets compared to a lot is seven, you know, which is written by Andrew Kevin Walker as well. Um, the, the opening here where, when um, Tom Wells is originally going to see the wealthy widow um, resembles almost exactly the, the way that um, David Fincher has a very similar uh, sequence, uh, you know, in, in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, where Daniel Craig is heading to mm. Christopher Plummer's uh, mansion or whatever. And, and it looked so similar that, that I, I, you know, had to kind of convince myself that, that Fincher couldn't possibly have gone to this Joel Schumacher movie. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and stolen like, <laughs> from it. <laughs> they look so similar. Like, go, go back and check it out. And, and like the, the trees look similar. The mansion looks similar. Um, like the only thing that's different is that it isn't snowing. Uh, so in a way, so to, so comparing it to seven, I don't think it gets quite there. Um, but that doesn't mean it's a bad movie at all. And in a weird way, I think eight millimeter makes you feel more uncomfortable than seven does. Did you find mm-hmm. that to be the case? Well, there's, I mean, by the, the nature of the investigation in seven, uh, there is a distance between you and the, the person doing all of these acts, right? I mean, we don't ever, and here, you know, there's that question that, uh, there are people that if you remove the old man who ordered this snuff film, paid for it, uh, to, to have someone killed and to, to get off on that fact, there are also the, the other elements, uh, most prominently played by James Gandolfini, who, are disgusted by what was done, what they participate in, but they simply needed the money, like 30 grand or whatever. And I, I, I like that. That stuff's interesting. That's, I don't think it's in seven. I mean, even the Tom Wells character, our lead played by Nicholas cage, there's a moment where he hands stack of cash to his wife. And because this, this young girl was killed, um, he gets to pay for his his little girl's college education and much more. I think it's the quote. And that there the, there are these sort of moral and ethical questions in play here about our good guys and bad guys that I think are removed in seven. I mean, I don't I, I don't think we can ever accuse the the Brad Pitt or Morgan Freeman character from profiting in any real way on what they're investigating. And you, you can kind of question Tom Wells a little bit about digging into this. Uh, because the longer he's on the case, the more profitable it is for him. He can't. He could walk away at various points. And still, there has to be some reason for why he's like he can't just be doing this for the kicks, uh, kind of thing. Um, you know, um, some of the some of the reviews I read criticized how uh, the wife character is just kind of relegated to to you know to being on the sideline and everything, and it's kind of boring. And I think that's a fair criticism. Um, 
you know, at the same time, um, I don't know how you would integrate his home life world with, you know, with his work life world in a more significant way without it getting really cheesy, like having machine abduct his wife or whatever. Sure. Um, sure. So, uh, I don't know. Is there anything else in the, I like, the, yeah, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> well, I, I like, I really like the, uh, f- first off, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a, a extremely underwritten character, but it's purposeful. I mean, this is a man that needs to keep the, the homestead as far away from his world as possible, but you have Catherine Keener, in a role. I think she brings a lot to the table, uh, even in, uh, you know, their, their sort of opening where he comes home from, uh, a, you know, probably fairly, uh, usual case for him of, of an affair that, and he takes pictures of people and comes back, you know, she's on him about his smoking and, you know, it's, it's something that is there is just sort of an, everybody loves Raymond sort of nagging wife type thing. Uh, but it's also, I think, you know, pointing out that this is a guy, even before he gets into a more, spectacular uh in a way case uh, with with murder and cover up and a lot of money at stake uh this is a guy that really enjoys um having an out from the family life he enjoys Mm -hmm. i think getting to go to bars and hanging out with a different element he enjoys getting to sort of wear that hat and he's someone that doesn't want to give it up just like he won't give up his smoking so yeah i mean that's that's a bit on the nose but i think when you have keener doing it and I, i actually do think cage does some pretty good work here uh, with the, you know, what is the straight man role? The only, the only issue I have primarily with the film that I think was maybe different from my, my teenage viewing is Joaquin Phoenix as Max California, which he is given a, he's given a lot of the comic relief, I uh-huh. guess, that's not in the original script. Uh, he's given this entire backstory about, uh, it's one of the things I hate, as we've discussed uh, in, in other episodes of the show and Varsity Blues I've brought up, where it's this character that is just, you know, he's just misunderstood, but he's got greatness in him. Uh, he, he has this long thing about his band. He came out for to make music, but uh, since he can't make music, he works in pornography, which is quite the leap to, to make as far as like, well, this is option number two. And none of that is in the original script. And uh, that that's really the only issue I have with the film is I, I think there needs to be less interplay between Cage and Phoenix because Phoenix just says a lot of things that – uh, Schumacher's already put in the film visually. You, you mentioned his Cage's manner of dress. Uh, we don't need Phoenix walk around saying like, you know, you, you dance with the devil. You know, you better watch yourself. Like, you know, the, the devil don't change. It's going to change you. And it's like, yes, yes, we get it. We can see it. Like, this is a movie. This is not an audio drama. Look, I don't know what your scene is. You, you may like porn as much as the next guy, but you don't look like your average sleaze. More like your average fucking cop. So when you walk around asking people about fucking illegal stuff, it has a certain patina to it. Uh-huh. Patina? Yes, it's a Truman Capote word. Hello. If someone never saw or sold a snuff film, they shouldn't give a damn what I ask about it. If they have, they got a right to be nervous. Whoever actually sold, did you keep knocking on their door? Look, Pops, it's not too late to change your mind about all this. I'm gonna tell you, there's things that you're gonna see that, that you can't unsee. They get in your head and they stay there. How do you know what I've seen? Okay, fine. But everybody's got their limit. Look, I've been here six fucking years trying to get my music together. So I start clerking part-time where I work, you know, to make ends meet. And boom, a couple years go by and here I am. I'm just saying, before you know it, you're in it, deep in it. Don't worry about me, but thank you. Well, you're welcome. Pops, you dance with the devil, the devil don't change. Devil changes you. Some of your lyrics. That's cute. 
uh, I think that's that stuff's a little heavy handed and uh, you can tell maybe they felt like they weren't getting their point across because I think Cage, for the most part, plays it fairly close to the vest. Um, I know he's known for going really big here, but I um, in his career, but I think here I think I think he's a fairly well as Tom Wells uh, as a guy that's in a, a really extreme situation. I'm okay. I'm going to disagree with you. Uh, <laughs> on Cage or Phoenix? On Phoenix. Uh, on Phoenix. I, I like Cage as well in this. I think it's. I think it's. It's one of his more subtle roles, really. Like he isn't chewing the scenery in every every scene. He really only goes, you know, into Cage mode um, when it's appropriate, um, and that worked for me. Um, for Joaquin Phoenix, uh, you're right. There are a few cheesy moments. There are a few moments where maybe. Maybe he's a little bit less confident as an actor, but he does something right here in that he creates a character who who you want to see more of. And that that functions really well in the film, because when this character is no longer around, you miss that he's not around. And if that wasn't there, you wouldn't understand uh, some of what or you wouldn't think was warranted some of what Tom Wells does in the later part of the movie. So I, I'm going to give Phoenix a little bit of credit there. And, and again, interestingly enough, this is like, I believe this is like a big breakout role for him as well. Like this is probably the first thing I remember seeing him in, um, you know, disregarding uh, parenthood or anything like that. Um, and, uh, and then like, like the next for, year, I never, I never, oh, I, I, yeah, I, never to die, I don't remember this. him in to die for, um, but uh, hmm. But the ne- very next year, he you know he's in uh, Gladiator and, and Quills, two two very memorable performances from him. Yeah, also a film called Return to Paradise, which I had seen that I didn't okay, realize I haven't came seen out. That. I that. haven't seen that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you and I just disagree because I anytime he was missing, I was very thankful that he was not there <laughs> chirping along in mine and Cage's ear. Um, and uh, I I will go back to I said this in text message to you. Uh, the, the one really big issue I have with the, uh, the costume design here is the belly shirt that he's wearing when we're introduced to him. Uh, I, I was just, I found that so distracting and, and wondered if I just was not hip enough. Maybe I've not browsed enough adult bookstores. That's what the, uh, the retail clerks are wearing. But I, I just found that uh, along with the hair just to be a bit much. Um, so yeah, I was not a fan of Max California. At, at all, really. Well, no comment on the on the belly shirt uh, at this time. <laughs> um, so I guess the only person you're really giving harsh criticism to is Andrew Kevin Walker uh, for not because it is funny because I did read some of those articles of him. Just he he wasn't so strongly dismissing the movie. He was just saying he I, the article I read. He was saying that he wish that wishes that someone would remake it. Um, but then you're right in the same article he goes on to say that he's never actually seen it and, mm-hmm. and that is kind of unfair like that makes that makes him less uh equipped to criticize eight millimeter than you or i and that's not a good <laughs> boat to be in um and and also i mean andrew he's a really good writer because you know we have another andrew kevin walker script coming up uh in sleepy hollow uh and i wonder why he hasn't produced more why he hasn't gotten more scripts sold um, you know, in the past decade. Uh, and, and so, uh, I think sometimes writers become very married to, uh, to their original ideas and everything. And, you know, no matter who you are, it's going to get changed 
uh, somewhere down the line. Um, the you know the old uh, saying is that it gets rewritten uh, three times. It gets rewritten. Um, when you're writing it, it gets rewritten again when you're shooting it, and it gets rewritten again when you're editing it. And it's true. And the reason that happens is because it should happen that way. You know, the things that you wrote don't always necessarily work in the edit, and you have to, you know, make those choices. It isn't, you know, th- this isn't like theater. Uh, you know, in theater, it's like the the author of the play, is, you know, is the god, and everything kind of serves them. Um, you know, movies aren't aren't like that. Uh, and and you know, like like the you know, so it's nice that he put his first draft of the script online for people to read and everything. But, you know, no one anywhere gets their first draft made into 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 a movie. Um, the one time that that happened, and I remember because people talked about it uh, a lot, was the um, Paul Haggis script for Million Dollar Baby. And even then you have to concede that that was the first draft that Paul Haggis um, showed to people. You don't know how many drafts he wrote before he, you know, he showed it to people. Yeah. I, I I'm trying to think of uh, positive things to say about his uh, script because it, it's strange. It's, it's far more heavy handed than what Schumacher gave us. And there would have been a lot more chances for cage to really cage uh, in the, in the written material. And it, it could be just because when you're, you know, you're writing these emotions down on the page, you need them to go bigger and you need far less of that when you have an actor doing it for you. Um, but I do like, uh, the ending is, uh, better, uh, slightly. Um, I will say there's, there would have been even less for Catherine Keener to do, which sounds almost impossible, <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, the way he resolves the, the villain, uh, there's no big speech, uh, from machine on why he does, uh, what he wants to do, which I, that always sort of stuck out for me because you'd already had a similar moment where the, the shady lawyer who sort of sets this, the snuff film emotion that the middleman, uh, explains to cage that this, this old rich guy, uh, basically had a young girl killed for his sexual pleasure just because he can. And then you have that idea repeated to our main character yet again from our our physical threat, our physical villain in Machine, where he's saying he does them because he likes to, and that's it. And I always that always stuck out to me, and it's like, wow, we've already kind of covered that territory. It it kind of does a disservice to the Tom Wells character that he cannot he cannot get it through his head, or he has such a fundamental lack well, of understanding well, of his what's going on. But against. Machine Machine offers up the information. Um, Wells doesn't ask for it. What'd you expect, the monster? My name's George. Probably knew that already. Can't get your mind around it, huh? I don't have any answers to give. Nothing I can say is gonna make you sleep easier at night. I wasn't beaten. I wasn't molested. Mommy didn't abuse me. Daddy never raped me. I'm only what I am. Yeah, uh, but I feel like that's, I mean, that's a decision the filmmakers make where it's like, so are you saying that they... They believe the audience didn't get it yet. I, I, am, I, I think it's interesting that Machine feels compelled to explain himself to Wells as opposed to Wells going, why, why would you do kind of thing? Having another, re- like you're saying, having another replay. Also, here's the thing. Machine has been in a mask the whole movie. So I, I would argue that the way to fix that would be to make the um, Anthony Held's character um, more 
cleaner to make his explanation just something very simple that can be explained just when he appears, basically. Mm. Um, and because I think machines, uh, you know, little speech there gets to something that, that the audience needed to have answered. You know, what is like he represents, you know, the absolute darkness of humanity or whatever. And he's the reason why Tom has been compelled to, you know, keep going and keep going down the rabbit hole and finding out what, you know, what's going on here. He can't just let it go. He needs to understand. Well, number one, he needs to make sure that this person, uh, you know, is brought to justice or his justice, um, but also needs to kind of understand how this sort of darkness can exist in the world. And, and it is, I think it's really interesting that in the final scene, it isn't Wells requesting the information from him, it's machine having to explain why he does what he does. Also in the original script, uh, we never actually see him unmasked. They, the character Tom Wells does, but they, it, it, it's made, it's in bold font there that, uh, the, 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 the audience will never see, uh, who was under the mask. And I have to, I don't know how I feel about that, but I, I've never really liked the way, uh, Chris Bowers, the, the actor, uh, who I believe went on to be uh, do a very successful run on The Wire, I think season two. Um, I've never really liked the way he sort of plays that moment where he changes his voice, like in a very showy, like knowing mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. from like machine's voice to, oh, now I'm putting on nerdy glasses. I'm just the average kind of nerd, slightly pudgy nerd now. And here's my voice for that. Um, I don't know. In this original script, machine just... I mean, he just maintains just a physical presence and threat, and that's all. That's all he really, he really is. And uh, I don't know. It may it would have given Cage a little bit something more to play off of, just seeing his reaction to, to pulling the mask off and really <clears throat> finding nothing, finding no answers. So I, I think I prefer that, but not enough. Uh, I want to really emphasize this: not enough to see an eight millimeter remake. I don't think to get to that <laughs> point, we really need to go through this process again. <laughs> But who knows? I don't. I don't know if this IP is uh, incredibly valuable to someone that they'll they'll put it out to market again. I agree with him in the sense that I agree that people should spend more time remaking movies that um, were interesting ideas, but maybe didn't work somewhere down the line or whatever. Not that eight millimeter mm-hmm. is representative of that, but there are a ton of movies I can think of where I'm like, like, yeah, they should just go back and like and like redo that and, and you know fix that and make that good. Um, As opposed to something like Seven, which has sort yeah. of maintained its status in pop culture, like it's are they are they remaking Seven? Please tell me no. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, in that article, that seemed like something that was going to happen, or I think they were talking about making it a TV series. That's um, I don't so I don't know if it's like a pure remake or if it's just sort of using be like a Fargo thing. What would you do after episode seven? What would you do after episode seven? Like, why would you make Seven into a TV series? <laughs> I, I don't know, uh, but I'm sure <laughs> FX is working on it or AMC you, or something. You would get to vengeance and it'd be like, oh, yeah, there's nothing left. All right. <laughs> <laughs> it becomes just a, uh, you know, a, a suburbia sitcom about the, the cop and his wife and his kids. And that's it. Or like an eight millimeter um, just going back home, I guess, and, and dealing with it. What are we talking about next week? Do you know? Analyze this, which works well because we saw James Gandolfini um, this week. And we'll be seeing uh, uh, another mob boss, um, you know, uh, for Analyze This. And I believe you wanted to talk about Sopranos connection and everything. So, yes, I I remember uh, reading 
reading these uh, those film blogs that that was like a big point of contention uh, with this <laughs> this stupid TV series uh, that was riding on the the coattails of this box office sensation. All right, yeah, that'll that'll wrap it up. So yeah, uh, we'll dig into that and the, the Sopranos. So uh, I assume. By that being in the parentheses there, we're going to watch the entire Sopranos run, right? I've already, I've seen it. I mean, I remember it. I don't know. (laughs) I'm going to have to get get really specific. I'm going to get specific on certain scenes from like, you know, episode five, season four and see if you're, you're on your game. No, uh, we'll just talk a little bit about Sopranos. That'll be it. So no rewatch needed. All right. So that'll do it for this week. And uh, thanks for listening, whoever you are. And if you'd like to continue the conversation with us, feel free to do so on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at 99from99.